Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the Africast. My name is Brendan Lotz and joining me as always is Clinton Matos. Yeah, hello everybody. And Robin Lichetti. Howdy. You guys having a good week? Looking forward to the weekend? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a new season. It's the last quarter of the year. I'm looking forward to putting 2021 behind us. The last <laughs> years have been, uh, have been a trip, man. So as soon as we can finish this, I'm going to be happy. And yourself, Robin? Uh, still indifferent. I'll have to wait until we move maybe to a, a lower lockdown level or some restrictions are eased. But in general, just happy it's a Friday. Yeah, it's always good for it to be a Friday. Uh, and speaking of which, this week, uh, HP, through its HP Wolf Security Division, uh, released the HP Wolf Security Rebellions and Rejections Report. Um, and it is a very concerning read if you are somebody that cares about your company's IT and security. Um, the findings show that IT teams have been forced into compromising security for business continuity during the pandemic. Um, and this is particularly concerning because throughout 2020 and 2021, we saw cybercrime on the increase. Um, making matters worse, the attempts to increase or update security measure, measures for remote workers were often rejected, with workers saying that they, they added too much friction to workflow. Um, the study was conducted with about 8,443 office workers uh, who were working from home during the pandemic and 1,100 IT decision makers. Um, and this is where the concerning stats start to pop up. 76% of IT teams admitted that security had taken a backseat. Um, while eight, 91% of IT teams felt pressure to compromise security in favor of business continuity. Uh, this makes a degree of sense because we know that security solutions often add a lot of friction. And when you're working from home, uh, an employee's internet connection might not be able to handle those, uh, the, those circumventions or those, those measures rather. Uh, and as such, they have been circumventing these, these security measures. Um, the report goes on to say that 91% of IT teams did adapt and implement uh, adapt and implemented uh, security measures that accounted for those working from home. But even then, there was pushback. Uh, they said that 80% uh, of IT teams experienced pushback from users who do not like controls being put on them at home. And 67% uh, of IT teams said they experienced complaints about this weekly. Furthermore, 80% of IT teams saying, said that they believe their job is thankless and nobody listens to them, um, which I, 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 can, I can kind of understand because nobody really wants to have to deal with security. Um, and the only time that you really thank your security team is when they, they stop a breach in its tracks. Um, but yeah, this is a very concerning report and it highlights the need of educating employees about cybersecurity risks. Um, we have the full report linked in the story that we covered earlier today. Uh, and if you are a chief information security officer or a CEO, um, I think that this is a report that is well worth a read and maybe it will uh, force you to reconsider how you, how you do your security and education, which is, yeah, it's definitely something that, uh, that needs to be considered, especially with cybercrime on the rise. That's I that. Yeah. I can understand why some employees don't like doing this, and I don't mean, oh, I have to, you know, enable two-factor authentication, that's hard or whatever, because I've been hearing some hor uh, horror stories over the course of the pandemic about really intrusive software, which is being used to kind of monitor workers at home, including using uh, their webcams to watch that they're actually physically sitting at their desk. 
And that is not uncommon. I've heard that from a few places and a few people. So I have to wonder how much of the security study is people willfully ignoring security and more so worried about privacy because I can understand both sides of that. I, I still think it's absolutely insane for your employer to have to watch you like that yeah. and that shouldn't be allowed. So when we're looking at this, because I did read the story um, that is going up on the site and I was just wondering when it talked about, uh, it specifically mentioned young people aged 18 to 24 in the workplace who might be more tech savvy and if you're, if you understand about you know the whole IT sector and then your boss tells you I want to watch you 24-7 over your webcam to make sure you're not slacking off yeah. that wouldn't sit well with me either I'm not saying that's exactly what they were talking about in that report but I just want to kind of play devil's advocate and say a lot of people weren't just being flippant about security it might have other factors yeah but it is still worth a consideration so yeah take a look at the uh, HP Wolf security rebellions and rejections reports um, I think it's a it's a really worthwhile read, especially for a business. Let's move on to uh, happier things. Clinton, you reviewed some new He-Man toys. Yes. So uh, for those who don't know, He-Man is back, but not really. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. There's a new <laughs> Netflix animation out called Masters of the Universe Revelation. So um, Mattel has for a long time been producing He-Man toys slash Master of the Universe toys that are based on the original um he-man and the original he-man toys and on the boxes of these um toys they even say uh, modern posing retro play so it's very clear that they've produced these toys with a, a nostalgic market in mind and we were sent some and i've got a full write-up about them but i just want to talk about them quick because we've mentioned toys in the past and things like lego and nerf kind of bridge the barrier between stuff that's made for kids and stuff that also um, appeals to a wider audience, an older audience. But these Mattel toys, it's, it's interesting because they, they are made for an older audience, right? They still are chunky plastic that kids aren't going to swallow. And they are still toys at the end of the day. But by going after that retro look, um, it's very intentional that they want people who grew up with He-Man to buy these toys. It's very clear that's what they want to do. And when they were sent to me, I was in a, a bit of a weird spot because I didn't grow up with He-Man. I was born in 95, and I know there's been several He-Man revivals over the years, but during my childhood, it just wasn't there. <laughs> Sounds like a dad joke. Oh, it just wasn't there. Um, it, it just wasn't a big IP at the time when I was growing up, and even if there were revival attempts, I didn't see them. But on the other hand, my brother, who was born in 83, he grew up with He-Man 100%. He was really there for the heyday of the IP. And I really wanted to show these to him to get his impression. And then to, to kind of give a full range of opinions on this, I also brought in my nephew, who was born very recently in 2010. So it, it's strange because if you look at these as just pure toys, they would most be marketed towards my nephew. But if you look at what they're doing with this classic look, it's more marketed to my brother. And then I, find, I fall somewhere in the middle. So uh, again, check out the story. We were sent three um, the figures and they each arrive at different price points. And for the size of these things, I was actually quite surprised by the price. Um, even if you're not someone who buys Lego and Nerf toys and all of that, you'll know that if you go into a toy store, things are shockingly expensive. Um, all three of us on this call here, we, we don't have kids, so we might not be tuned in to the price of toys. 
So let me tell you, they're expensive. And these ones are not that expensive. The biggest one is 480 Rand. But if you look at Lego again, you can buy a tiny set for 480 Rand. If you look at Nerf, I think you, you can only get like a pistol for 480 Rand of um, Nerf guns, Nerf blasters. They don't like when you use the term gun. <laughs> so let me, let me go through them quick again. Check out the story because I have the full details. In terms of my reception to them... I like them. They, it's weird because they are. They have a lot of detail in like the sculpting, but then the the paint jobs on them are a bit basic. It's big blocky colors, and for example, that most expensive set, um, the Sky Sled, it has a lot of fine detailing, but then that detailing isn't colored in. It's not painted in, and I understand that's the style of the '80s, but it's a bit weird to see these modern techniques to making these toys, and then they have old scale paint jobs. So it's a bit weird in terms of that. Um, like I said, I, I do like the prices here. I think they're very fairly priced. And also they're, they're very chunky. I don't know what other word you can use there. They're very um, hearty in the amount of plastic that's in there. I think also another surprise some people might have if they haven't bought toys since they were little is you'll pay a lot of money for a toy and then it's just hollow, cheapo, Chinesean plastic, right? So these... Did you just say Chinesean plastic? Yeah. You've never heard that term before. Never in my life. It's, you usually use it if it's if you buy something that's made out of metal and then it's it's some weird alloy you've never heard of and that's extremely brittle and soft and people have co been calling that Chinesium. Okay. <laughs> so these are the opposite of that. They're, they're very hard. Um, in there's no give. They're not really rubberized. And they feel like you can throw them around pretty hard. So... If you give them, my nephew's now 11, if you give these toys to someone even younger than him, they're not going to destroy it. You could pull off the limbs, but the limbs can just snap back into place. So that's my take on it. And I then gave it to my brother, and he's not someone who will say, oh, this is fantastic, I really like this. But you know when someone opens a present, and then they get a smile on their face, and they can tell, oh, I bought them the right present? Yeah. I definitely saw that smile on my brother's face when he opened some of these. I don't know how close the packaging is to the original toys, um, but it, it's clear that he saw these, and he didn't need to ask. He didn't need any information extra. He knew what these were. These were He-Man toys that he had when he was growing up. So... From his perspective, I mean, it's a home run. If he was the type of person to buy toys and put them on his desk or uh, some shelves, these, you know, they passed the litmus test. They really worked for him. So the last person is my nephew. So <laughs> my nephew had some choice quotes that I that I put in the story for verbatim. Um, he called Battle Cat a goblin. Uh, he said the, the helmet that goes on Gringer's head looks like a goblin. Um, he said Merman looks like a character from Fortnite. And he thought Prince Adam was Hercules. So uh, he was he was a bit confused by what he was seeing because he's obviously never interacted with these characters before. But he said he likes them. He didn't write them off immediately as he does sometimes with some other toys. And he said they're very vintage and very retro. And I don't know wow. where he, he learned those words. Um, I assume it's all the YouTube he watches. Uh, no, probably probably learned it at a very expensive school. So it seems like all three of us gave it a thumbs up in varying degrees. I was towards the, this is great section. And so was my brother. And then my nephew was more in the middle, but still sees the value in these. So I wasn't, I was a bit surprised by these toys. I did see them in the toy store before we were sent these review copies. 
and I thought, oh, these are pretty cool, and they're not that expensive. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a home run, but these do exactly what you want them to do. I did mention some problems I had with them. Um, the painting is good for the painting that is there, but it's not 100%, though you can't expect better at this price point. Um, one of them has stickers instead of a, a printed piece, and I, I really don't like stickers and toys. They, they always crumble after a few years. And I would have expected some extra play features. Uh, for example, again, I'm going back to the most expensive set, the Sky Sled. It has like a gun in the front and the the like muzzle flash piece that you connect. I fully expected that to be some kind of spring-loaded shooter or something like that, but it's not. The, the only play feature any of these has is posability. And again, that's probably because they intended to go on the shelf for older collectors, but I would have liked some extra functionality here. Um, maybe like, what's it called, karate chop action, you press a button and they do something, or just some spring-loaded shooters or something like that. The, uh, yeah, the, I, w I wanted more functionality, more playability here. Um, the only other thing to mention is that Battle Cat and Merman have, I don't know what you'd call them, their armor and clothing and stuff like that can actually be taken off. So you can see the sculpt better, which is, again, you, you don't expect something nice like that at the price point. But to get those things on and off is very fiddly. It's it's made to stay on, uh, which I suppose is a good thing. Because, again, these are made to be display pieces. So that that's the He-Man range. We didn't get to see all of it. But I think this is a nice cross-section of what's available at the toy store and what prices are available. And there were a surprise. I, I wouldn't be surprised if... In a few years, in like 10 years, somebody who didn't watch the He-Man show on Netflix or any of the original He-Man um, shows says, yeah, I, got, I had that toy when I was little. I didn't know what it was, but I had fun with that toy. So check out my full written review and all of that. I know there was lots of words about some plastic, but I, I think it's important to look at these when they target a nostalgia audience. And also, like I said, toys are expensive, so it's good to know what you're paying for. Yeah, I... I, I think I told you, Clinton, I used to have like a He-Man bendable figure. And these these are miles above what I had when I was a kid. Um, and I do kind of like that they kept the retro look even to yeah. the boxes and the design of the uh, the, the figures, I guess we can call yeah. them. Um, I, I really like that they stuck with that rather than trying to update them. I'm sure that they will release like... They, they actually have already. Oh, have so... Them. There are toys specific for the new Netflix show. Okay. Um, they do have those updated designs, but I, I checked on the Mattel website. There's only, I think, five or six, but for these classic ones, there's like a dozen or so. So they, they are obviously still focusing on the old stuff mm. because that's what people recognize, but there is some new stuff that has the new designs, but they look very, I mean, it's the same characters, just redesigned. But yeah, it, it's clear that they know their, their audience and they're targeting the nostalgia crowd. Absolutely. Do you know if Mattel are bringing other classics? Because if there's like a Lion-O from Thundercats or a, a Marshall Brave star, I'm definitely in. So it, it's, I don't know how much of that is available in South Africa because there are a lot of those overseas. If you go to the Mattel website, I'll just try and load it quick. Um, you can look at their, their franchises, and Mattel does a lot of things. If it would just load. Come on. They do have um, other other retro toys, but I don't know how many of them are available in South Africa. And also, uh, a, a company you don't hear a lot about in South Africa 
is Mega Blocks, which are, have been rebranded to Mega Constructs. Um, it, that's a whole thing. The Mega Blocks are still for, for small children. And then Mega Constructs, they do properties like Halo and World of Warcraft and Alien and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wow. and all these franchises. And they offer those as adult-orientated, like, brick-built products that are retro-themed. Like, for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you could get uh, minifigures of them but as the original black and white comic book versions. And you can't get more retro than that. It's not even the original cartoon. It's the original comic. So, yeah, this, we can talk a lot about toys. So, oh, Mattel is actually part of Mega Blocks. Or Mega, Mega Blocks is part oh, of Mattel, probably. Yeah, I, I see featured brands, Mega. Yeah, so, so that's, that is Mattel's Masters of the Universe slash He-Man, even though if you know, watch the new Netflix show, he-Man's not in it that much. Yeah, it's kind of like the Masters of the Universe, sometimes featuring He-Man. Yeah, I don't want to spoil that show, but it, it's the greatest bait and switch I've ever seen in any <laughs> property ever. And again, people have written about this other um, websites that focus on Netflix, but coming up to the show, a lot of people assumed He-Man wasn't going to be in it that much. And Kevin Smith, who helped create this new version of the show, he actually went on Twitter and he was like, oh, these people, they're just haters. They don't know. They haven't seen the show. No, no, no. He-Man's in this a lot. And then He-Man's in the show for like, if you count the, the, the minutes, he's in it like 5% of the total runtime. And He's, I think he's definitely in the pilot episode, for sure. Sorry, Robert? I was just saying he's definitely in the pilot episode. Oh, yeah. He's in the pilot and then not the last two episodes, but he's in there. He has so little screen time. It's hilarious. I Like I said, I have no nostalgic connection to the show, but it's, it's hilarious how funny the bait and switch is. I don't know why they just didn't say this is a Masters of the Universe show and He-Man will be in it, but not that much. I, I don't understand why they lied to the audience. Maybe because they wanted them to watch it first and then complain later. Yeah. Very so weird. <laughs> Up and Kevin Smith. He does <laughs> the weirdest things. Kevin. Anyway, right. That's uh, the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe toys from Mattel. Uh, we'll have a link to the full piece from Clinton below. Uh, moving on to something that happened this week uh, was the PlayStation Showcase. Ooh, and we had some, uh, some announcements about some very highly anticipated games, didn't we, Robin? Yes, we did. Uh, I think I can speak for everyone when I say when the PS5 launched last year, there were really only a handful of titles to get excited about. Uh, in the months that have followed since then, pretty much the same situation. Uh, mm. What we reviewed so far, probably the Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales was a standout and probably uh, Demon's Souls. Um, so yeah, there hasn't been a lot for PlayStation fans to get excited about. A couple of remasters here and there and some ports to the, the next-gen console. So this PlayStation uh, showcase was, was really hotly anticipated uh, purely because we wanted to see what Sony is, uh, is cooking up. And in some parts, it didn't disappoint. So I should probably mention, obviously, God of War Ragnarok. I think if that wasn't showcased at the PlayStation showcase, there would have been, I don't know, a revolt Fans of some kind. Fans would have kind. read them the riot act. That's what would have happened. <laughs> Yeah, so, so thankfully, uh, Santa Monica Studio uh, delivered on the goods. Saw plenty of God of War Ragnarok. I was interested to find out that uh, Corey Barlog isn't actually going to be directing it. Uh, they're bringing in one of the other talents from Santa Monica Studio, 
uh, who's worked on previous projects to kind of helm things here. So it will be interesting to see how he does. Uh, his name escapes me right now, but I know that for the first God of War in uh, the 2018, sorry, the 2018 version, uh, Corey's uh, connection to the story and his kind of direction really, I, I believe, re- really had a big part in success. Mm-hmm. So I am interested to see what uh, a new director will bring to it. Um, so as far as God of War Ragnarok uh, goes, uh, we did get a, a good chunk of footage to kind of dissect. Uh, we see now that uh, Kratos and Atreus are trying to stop Ragnarok from happening. Uh, and, and this is potentially a spoiler, but uh, during the interview portion after the showcase itself, um, Sony did, execs did speak to Santa Monica Studio and they did say that Ragnarok is going to happen. So oh, despite wow. Kratos and Atreus's best efforts, the Ragnarok event will happen. So I guess the story of this upcoming title is that they're going to try and prevent those events, but eventually it will happen. Mm. Um, anyone that knows the lore of God of War within the Norse mythology knows that um, Atreus is actually a giant, and that kind of element of his life is explored a bit more. We also got to see uh, Tyr, who is the Norse God of War. He's mentioned quite a bit in the lore and the mythology and the stories uh, that Mimir uh, says uh, during the 2018 game. So we get to see him. Uh, he's a rather tall chap. Um, we also got to see that Freya is back. Um, she was the she was an ally throughout most of the game, but at, at the end when we killed uh, Sun, he, she um, eventually turned on Kratos and Atreus and she will be coming back to seek vengeance. We also got a little snippet of Thor's hammer. And we also have confirmation that Odin will feature. Uh, we know who the voice actor is going to be, but we don't necessarily know if he will be appearing on screen for players. So there's a lot to get excited about. Uh, things look as violent and as crisp and sharp as ever uh, as they did in the 2018 game. As far as the launch goes, we have 2022, which is a rather large uh, window. Um, <laughs> I think that probably gives them enough room to kind of do any spit and polish they need to uh, before the game is released, which I think given the success of the 2018 game is is more than uh, earned. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully Santa Monica Studio can, uh, can actually deliver again because tw- I, think tw- I think everyone can agree the 2018 game was near perfection and we're, we're open for the same for Ragnarok. I think it's one of the best games ever made. And I know it seems like every few months one of the best games ever made comes out, but there's there's something about the God of War that it's just on top and one step above a lot, uh, what a lot of other games do. And playing it, I played the PS5 version, but I did play it on a 1080p monitor, but I could still see the difference in... Uh, quality and uh, nice solid 60 frames per second using the settings on the, the PS5. It's it's just so polished. It's so much fun. It's it's one of the best games ever. Yeah, I think we're all big fans here at Hypertech. Yeah. So, um, especially with Corey's work and hopefully, although he's not directing here, it still has an influence because uh, yeah, I think the direction that he took was, was fantastic. Yeah. Um, some of the other things that were announced, uh, we got a little teaser for Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, the remake. It's coming to the PS5. Also got a, another look at uh, Forspoken, which is a weird title. Uh, the actual name itself is quite weird in my view. Uh, we saw some visuals from there. It looks quite interesting. Uh, a lot of, just visually, it looks quite impressive. 
Uh, we, we have to see what that has in store for us. We've also got to see a bit more of Ghostwire Tokyo as well as, as uh, Gran Turismo 7, which is headed to the uh, PS5 and PS4 next year in March. We also got to see a bit of the story for Deathloop, and I, I think you're probably the most interested in that uh, title. Clinton, what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far? So hyped for Deathloop. Uh, I've talked a lot on the on the website and in this podcast about the fact that I really like roguelikes and roguelikes or whatever you want to call them. And this is maybe the biggest budget roguelike. And also, um, Prey had a an expansion called Moon Crash, which was also a roguelike. So I, I kind of know what to expect from playing Moon Crash, and I kind of know what to expect from Deathloop because... Be- of all the uh, the delays that Deathloot have, every time they keep releasing new content to keep people hyped. So we've seen a lot of the game so far, and I'm very excited to play it. It's actually out next week. Um, I mean, the only thing stopping me from being extremely hyped is the very high uh, PC requirements, because it's it's a bit weird. It's coming out on PS5 and PC, um, but now that Microsoft owns um, ZeniMax, which owns Bethesda, which made this game, um, it might come to Xbox eventually, but I'm very hyped for this game. It's coming out next week. The PC requirements are high, and I haven't been able to upgrade my PC because of everything going on in the world. So looking forward to this. I will hopefully get a review code, and I can write content for the site, but cautiously optimistic, but very optimistic. Yeah, we're going to try and grease as many palms as we can to get a review uh, for us. We'll see how that goes. Um, some of the other ones we got to see a bit of was uh, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, uh, there, there was also a trailer for uh, GTA 5 and GTA Online coming to PS5 in March next year. Uh, we saw a little bit of the Alan Wake remake that's coming to PS4 and PS5. And then uh, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Extraction, which I'm not really a fan of the direction it's taking as far as an alien invasion and having an elite ops team. Going in there, I, I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, we also got to see a little bit of gameplay for Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, and well, as well as uh, a rather in-depth look at a new project. Uh, sorry, that's called Project Eve. Um, combat looked really great in it. Uh, it is quite a bit of fan service, so um, lots of interesting shots of the main protagonist. Um, yeah, it's. It's very much on of the near automata kind of uh, fan servicey kind of uh, design. Uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of that, but I like the way that the combat looks uh, in the early kind of showings. And then probably the other two worthwhile announcements with mentioning is what uh, Insomnia Games are doing. So they had a teaser for Marvel's Wolverine. Uh, we get to see Logan in a bar after some kind of brawl had broken out and he unsheathes his animantium claws and that's it so unfortunately we don't have a lot to go on uh, but they say it will be a standalone game uh, so we don't necessarily know how, ma- how many of the X-Men might feature kind of where this is placed within Logan's kind of lifespan within the comics uh, but the fact that he's, he's rocking animantium claws means that it's after his uh, surgery or his Project X surgery uh, with uh, William Stryker, so that potentially is be a storyline that they look to develop. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any launch date either for it, so it's just kind of one of the things that was quickly announced. Lots of hype around it, but not much we can really go on after that. 
The other uh, project that Insomnia Games uh, showcased was Marvel Spider-Man 2. And that showed a little bit of melee combat between, well, including um, Peter Parker and Miles Morales. So those two characters were featuring in Spider-Man 2. And then there's a voiceover that involves, I believe it is Kraven the Hunter. And then it transitions to Venom. We see the symbiote face uh, in a dark alleyway. And kind of that's it. So they've kind of teased and set up that Venom will probably be the big bad. And Kraven the Hunter will probably feature quite a bit. And yeah, in recent years, Insomnia games have really hit it out the park with their Marvel uh, games. Uh, I think we can all agree, much like God of War, that Marvel Spider-Man is up there as far as a near-perfect game goes. The Miles Morales quote-unquote DLC was quite impressive when we played it on PS5, um, and we're really interested to see what they're going to be cooking up for Spider-Man 2. Like God of War, it uh, has a pretty large... uh, window it's it's coming in 2023 so that could be the beginning middle or end who knows when in 2023 but we'll give it given what insomnia games has produced in the past uh we will give them as much time as they need there's only one go ahead brendan there's only one game on that entire list that i wish that they would not remake and that's knights of the old republic and the reason I say that is that I recently, or recently, a couple of years ago, I went back and played uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, or KOTOR, and it was not a good experience. So I hope that if they are remastering this, and or remaking it, that they do a really good job, because I don't think that that game aged very well uh, from the year it was released to, to, na- to now, which was 20 years ago, so... Yeah. Apparently, the mobile version's a bit better to play than the original PC port. I've heard. I haven't. It's just played. you know what my issue is, right? Is that back in the day, it was one of those really cool games that I think was marked by me being just a, a kid that was in love with Star Wars. And going back and playing it, I was just like, "Is this it? Is this all I can really do? I don't really remember there being this little to do and this few enemies and." things being as janky as they are like yeah i, I don't know I, i'm concerned that it's just fan service and they're doing this for that and only that um although ea isn't a part of this so that's a good thing i suppose <laughs> yeah i heard you're saying uh remasters and remakes are always a bit hidden this uh for now i'll give them the benefit of the doubt because demon souls was unbelievable uh as far as a quote-unquote remake goes I know it's different studios that are behind it, mm. but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for now. Uh, hopefully, yeah. when we start seeing more footage, we can start uh, seeing whether we want to ante up any money and actually want to buy it. And I mean, like I say this, like I'm not going to be the first one in line to play a Star Wars RPG all over again. I definitely will. Um, I just hope that it's it's a good remake. Do you guys think that uh, Insomniac is making its own Marvel characters universe because? They've been thinking about doing it, and even when the first Spider-Man came, game came out, we knew that the Avengers existed in the world because there was the Avengers Tower in that game. And I think with now Miles, uh, and then now Craven and um, not Sport Venom, Venom. <laughs> and now Wolverine, it would be really easy for them to make an Insomniac Avengers game. But I don't think they'll do it anytime soon because... That name in games is kind of tainted by the Square Enix game that came out and was just a wet fart of a game. So do you guys think they, they're kind of 
aiming to do that eventually uh, Insomniac Avengers? I don't necessarily think Avengers, but potentially something like X-Men would be better served just purely from the fact that it's not necessarily a property that's been touched in the same way uh, that Avengers has recently. I think if Insomniac does something, they want to do it properly. And I think everyone has a little bit of a bitter taste in their mouth when it comes to Avengers and games. Mm. Um, So if they were interested in perhaps doing something X-Men related, I'd definitely be up for that. I have to wonder if this Wolverine game will come to other consoles because I know Insomniac has only been making PlayStation exclusives, but on the first thing to take note here is that Sony Interactive is pushing a lot of PS5 games, uh, sorry, a lot of PlayStation exclusive games to PC. We've already seen Days Gone and Horizon Zero Dawn, and there's a lot of, um, no, there's not rumors. It was confirmed that uh, Uncharted 5 is also coming to PC. And so, God of War. I, is, has that been confirmed, though? I don't know if it's been confirmed, actually, now that I say because it. I, think I remember they, when, they when they announced a, Sorry, Brendan, I'm talking over you. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I believe they said that they wanted to bring it to PC. Uh, whether it was this year or next year, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but I, I do remember some official word from uh, Sony Santa Monica saying that they wanted to bring it to PC. I wouldn't be surprised if they bring God of War 1 to PC a few months before God of War Ragnarok comes out on PlayStation that to get sell, That would literally sell consoles. Yeah, yeah. and then I, I think why I also bring this up is I think they might then do the same for Spider-Man 2 or whatever it's called. Mm. Before Spider-Man 2 comes out, a month or two before you release the first one and Miles Morales maybe on PC to keep the to keep the hype going. But then the reason I also think that this Wolverine game might come to other consoles is that Sony, uh, Sony, Sony has made Spider-Man a PlayStation exclusive um, by way of Insomniac making those Spider-Man games only for PlayStation. But then also the Spider-Man DLC for the the aforementioned Square Enix Avengers game is also only for PlayStation. So I think there's some deal that we don't know about or that has been made public. I'm not sure that Spider-Man equals PlayStation, but where Wolverine falls on that spectrum, I have no idea. But I'd really like to play that Wolverine game on my PC. Um, but we'll see. I'm sure that that Wolverine game is going to be one of those things where we'll see more of it in like six months. It might be a licensing issue as well because you got to think about Sony movies. And oh, yeah. there's a whole, all, the, all the big issues about the Spider-Man movie and uh, the, the Venom movie. So I think there's a lot of licensing, a lot of lawyers that have to get into boardrooms and discuss this kind of stuff. Well, I I would agree with you, but as far as I know, Spider-Man and a few Spider-Man characters are the only Marvel characters that Sony still has their claws in. Um, Disney owns everything out right now. Uh, They bought Fox, so they have Wolverine and the rest of the uh, X-Men under their thumb again. So I I don't think it would fall into that category, but Spider-Man does still fall into that category because Sony Sony's holding on to Spider-Man for dear life. Just give the people what they want. They want a black cat game. Oh no! Why would you say things like that? Have you not seen the fan? Not see the fanboys react to cat, uh, Black Cat in the game. Wow. Yes, I did. I did see them react. <laughs> I did see the fan art. Thank you very much. Didn't everybody love playing as Catwoman in the Arkham games? No, I did mm. not. I, I know. really did not. Everyone hates really it. weird walk. 
Man. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see a cat a black cat game would be uh like Robin said for that other one, a lot of fan service. Yeah, so Sony definitely brought the hype uh, on Thursday evening. Uh, I think at least, especially with regards to God of War Ragnarok, I'm so excited for that. Um, just to see what Sony Santa Monica does with the story. I see that you get a sled with two wolves. I mean, game of the year already. It's already game of the year for me. Um, so yeah, lots to look forward to in the next year and next two years rather from Sony. Uh, maybe it will finally inspire folks to get a console if they can get hold of one. Um, as always, we'll have links to all the stories we've discussed uh, in today's Africast at the bottom of this post. Uh, but today we want to talk about the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Uh, while the two terms are usually used interchangeably, they actually aren't the same thing. Um, and to find out more, we spoke to Chris Roper. Uh, he is the co-chief executive officer at an organization called Code for Africa. And Code for Africa recently uh, joined a project that is known as the, uh, I'll give you the name, the Local Government Election Anti-Disinformation Project. Uh, this includes a number of organizations, including Right to Know, Code for Africa, Superlinear, and Witness. And then we also have Pumzile Van Dam, Van Dam, who used to be uh, part of the DA, or she used to be an uh, an MP for the DA, uh, is no longer with that that political party. And Dr. David Rosenstein. Um, so this project focuses on three main components. That's disinformation monitoring and, and combating. Uh, this will focus on online political discourse as well as messaging emanating from political parties and governments. Advocacy, this aspect of the project will focus on big tech, PR firms, and the use of video to expose human rights abuses as well as combating disinformation. And finally, behavioral science. This will see partners trying to understand the believability of disinformation in South Africa. So we had a lot of questions about this project. So we spoke to Chris Roper about all of them, um, spoke to him about disinformation and misinformation, what the differences are, what you as a ordinary citizen can do to combat misinformation. Um, and yeah, uh, so take a listen to that and we'll be right back. Hey, hello, my name is Brendan Lotz and you're listening to The Africast. Uh, joining me today, we have the CEO, or is it co-CEO of Code for Africa, Chris Roper. Hello, Chris, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, Brendan, you? Uh, very well. Um, today, we wanted to chat to you about the uh, the upcoming local government elections, specifically the anti-disinformation campaign that you, uh, together with a whole bunch of organizations, have launched. Um, I, I want to start off by asking a bit about what is this project and how was it, how was it born? So the project is really um, uh, comes out of wanting to collaborate with organizations and individuals who have resources, who are already working on anti-misinformation and disinformation um, projects. And we want to kind of um, make those resources available generally. So in the case of Code for Africa, for example, we already work in 21 African countries um, on misinformation and disinformation projects. We have a, a digital forensics team that operates out of uh, East Africa that covers, um, I think it's probably about 20 countries now. Um, we partnered with the Digital Forensics Research Lab in Cape Town, um, which is a big global organization mm -hmm. to look at information in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. We have the biggest, uh, in terms of footprint, fact-checking organization in Africa. 
And we also do a lot of work in terms of um, big data and uh, deep analysis using kind of uh, machine learning platforms and so on to do that. So, you know, with all those resources, um, we wanted to make them available to both the partners in this project and just newsrooms um, in general in South Africa to look at misinformation around the local government elections. And I think you'll find that's pretty much the same for all the partners in this collaboration. So none of them are, are getting paid for any of that kind of thing. It's all just kind of voluntarily making your organization or your personal time available. Um, and I think what where the other impulse came from in terms of from Zeli Fandama, who is the person who kind of kickstarted this, is just you know seeing the amount of misinformation mm. and being uh, being um, on the receiving end of a whole bunch of misinformation and disinformation um, on social media. Um, you know, and I think if I had to add a third um, reason, I think we're all pretty shocked at the kind of um, effect that social media had on um, promoting the recent unrest in South Africa. So it's a very da dangerous time. And, you know, just before uh, local government elections is a, a time when there's a real uh, surge in misinformation. Fantastic. I mean, well, not fantastic. It's not fantastic to be surrounded by misinformation and not be able to make head or tail of what is accurate and what isn't. Um, and I just want to touch on that aspect a little bit. A little bit. Um, could you maybe give us a an explanation of what the difference is between disinformation and misinformation, because I think a lot of the time the, the, the terms are used interchangeably and I, I don't think that's, that's correct. So maybe you could just set us on the right path and, and let us, what is the difference between disinformation and misinformation? Sure. I mean, at its most simplest, um, disinformation is deliberately made up fake, um, fake news or, um, or propaganda that is um, purposely put out into the world in order to either make the person money, which is like normally the, the main driving factor, mm -hmm. or to um, kind of make some kind of ideological point, um, or to cause some kind of uh, change in in the environment. So it's deliberate um, false propaganda or false um, facts. Whereas misinformation can be, um, you know, it can be your your parents sharing a graph on WhatsApp that they think is true, but it's actually something that somebody else made up. Um, so it's misinformation that can be accidental. It can be, um, you know, it can be, for example, information that, that is shared like a headline, mm. which can be a, a headline of a true story, but it's shared in a different context and, and you doing that kind of uh, unconsciously. So that's really the, the the major difference. The one is like direct malevolent agency, and the other one is kind of you know just the usual uh, way human beings operate in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the time, uh, the, the the term gets used interchangeably, mainly because I think a lot of people want to want to believe that they were conned or they didn't read something correctly, um, and so they assign it to misinformation. Uh, whereas folks that are deliberately sharing uh, information that is not accurate, uh, that that is disinformation. But I think I think you you explained it really really well. Yeah, and, and I mean so, you know sometimes so I think uh, just today there's one of our uh, local alt right um, YouTube idiots uh, shared a graph which shows um, a spike in COVID nineteen infections in Israel 
Mm. Um, and the actual graph that, that he, he copied this from is a much bigger graph and showing that spike is a very minor spike. Mm. But because he zoomed in on it and cropped it, so even though it comes from real information, the way it's presented is to cause harm. So, you know, it can be quite quite tricky. And I think one of the reasons that people are a bit confused about the difference between those two words is that they're pretty new terms. I mean, these are, you know, before we used to call it propaganda or lies or, yeah. you know, whatever. But now because it's so weaponized and because the technology platforms enable the, the, the kind of deployment of, of misinformation and disinformation as weapons, it's something we, we, we need to, to learn about. Um, and I think that's part of what this project, um, this uh, misinformation project is trying to do is to um, make the tools to understand mis and disinfo uh, much more readily available, both to ordinary citizens, mm. but also to newsrooms who have to work with kind of like big tranches of data. And, and you know, it's quite hard to determine what is true and what is false in, in that kind of scenario. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially the, the, the point about civilians being able to verify whether something is accurate or not. I mean, I get SMSs from family or text messages from family all the time asking me, is this real? Is this happening? Um, yeah. A lot of the time, stuff is happening or stories are developing and you can't really make a call whether it's accurate or not. Um, and yeah, it, it, I think being able to give citizens the power to be able to 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 know and fact check something I think is really, really important because I think a lot yeah. of the time uh, you'll have somebody like Real 411, which I think is a really great initiative, but Real 411 will come out and say, well, you know, this is not accurate and this will be met with hesitance and somebody saying, oh, but how do we, how can we trust these people? You know, I well, haven't seen yeah. it myself. It's much worse because, I mean, I think, for example, Pesicek, our fact checking organization, um, I think they they get something like four thousand bits of misinformation taken down a month wow. off Facebook, something like that. And they, I think they fact check, like 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 they rigorously get like investigative mm. um, researchers to fact check. I think it's something like I don't know, line I think something like about five hundred individual fact checks a month. Wow. Um, Actually, I think it's probably more like about 250. I can't remember. But the, I mean, the, the real point is that that is just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. As soon as you have said, look, this is, fa this is fake, the person who's put up that fake news story just puts up another one. They don't mm. care. Like, it's not that they want you to believe in that thing that they made up. Yeah. It's that they want to keep on making up things so they can get clicks on it so they can drive traffic to websites where they can harvest revenue, right? Absolutely. So, so you can almost so, so there are two kind of ways of doing it. So, Code for Africa, we have uh, the fact checking organisations that are there to really make sure the kind of you know the dangerous, life threatening, mm. anti-vax and whatever nonsense is taken down before it can be spread. But then the other side of what Code for Africa does is have um, an investigative team of um, forensic analysis and analysts, investigative journalists, and so on, who kind of try and ignore the individual bits of misinformation, disinformation, but go try and go behind it and you see like, you know, uh, what is the source of all this? Who are the people trying to make the money out of it? Mm. You know, they follow the money to say like, this is like, you know, it's kind of same, the same thing as like working out that, you know, um, misinformation around um, the 2016 American elections all comes, not all, but a lot of it comes from the, um, the internet agency in Russia, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like, be able to work out where this is originate and then kind of strike at the heart of that business case 
and that propaganda case rather than having to keep on playing this whack-a-mole thing that's trying to knock down misinformation because it's just so much of it. Yeah, I, I, that, I think that's a really good point that you raise, Chris, is about the, the playing whack-a-mole because, as you say, a lot of these, a lot of misinformation campaigns are funded by a really big, we saw that recently, um, uh, where YouTubers were hired uh, to spread mm. uh, misinformation on behalf of a company. And like you say, dealing with those, those YouTubers, they're just the face, right? They're just the the, the the foot soldiers, they're not really the ones that are making the decision or, or, or controlling the narrative. It's these bigger corporations. Um, Chris, I do just want to touch on a, a, a point about big tech because a lot of the time, and personally, I feel like big tech kind of could do a lot better, especially on the African continent. Um, they, I, I've said many times on our podcast that they're there, every week there seems to be some sort of issue with lo- with social media locally, whether that's a racist term that's trending on the platform or whether it's misinformation or disinformation that's being spread rampantly. Um, what sort of what sort of ways are there for South African organizations or projects such as yourselves to kind of hold big tech to account? And is this something that you're going to be focusing on as part of this project? So the, the first the answer to the first part of the question is that there are not many ways you can hold big tech to, to account, unfortunately. Um, I mean, they've tried. If, if, we, if we were going like to look at, look at the attempts they've made to, um, you know, I mean, Facebook has got kind of like independent boards now. Um, they've just started an independent uh, board for, um, for elections, I think, as well. Mm. So, you know, they've, they've made attempts. They've tried to do things. And if we were going to look at that in a, in a kind of a, and cynical light, that's great. But at the same time, they don't, you know, because they're such great massive monopolies and because all our data is owned by them, it's extraordinarily difficult for anybody to try and make some interventions in their ecosystem. It all has to rely on them doing, doing something about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And just before I answer the second part of the question, I think one of the major um, threats, uh, not threats, but actual um, negative accomplishments of big tech, of course, is that it strips so much, so many resources from newsrooms. Mm. And newsrooms have traditionally been the arbiters and the recorders of what is true and what is false, right? But now because newsrooms are being stripped of so many assets because they can't turn revenue anymore because all revenue goes to the big platforms, mm. that's also um, a kind of a weak point and a fault line in, in the, the, the kind of ecosystem of, of truth. Um, but then on the second part of the question, what can we do about it? I mean, there is a lot of um, legislation being promulgated and happening in places like Australia and Europe um, around, and, and in fact, America as well, around challenging the, monop- the monopoly platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that from Zinni from Dime is so interested in here, and in fact, it turns out is one of the reasons why she left the DA, because they wouldn't let her summon Facebook to parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that she's interested in is trying to get African cu- countries to... Um, to kind of collaborate and uh, around trying to bring some form of legislation in um, to control the, the kind of you know the the, the monopolies of the um, of the social media platforms. Of course, it has its own dangers because you don't really ever want government to be involved in the business of regulating freedom of speech. Mm. Um, so that you know, so, so it's a hugely complex complex subject. Um, you know, one that. Yeah, it really requires a, a much longer discussion. But I mean, that would be my summation of it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point that you raise. Um, 
especially well in a wider context in in terms of Africa. I mean, Facebook, I suppose, has a presence locally in South Africa at the very least. But I mean, Twitter only just recently opened an office, a virtual office, I would say, uh, in Africa. And I think that a lot of what we see on Twitter just I don't know. I, I honestly feel like Twitter doesn't care what happens outside of the U.S. Um, that's that's just my opinion. Whether that is true or false, I'm happy to have a conversation with Jack Dorsey about. But I really, I, I really do feel that a lot of the time, what happens in the U.S. is what informs Twitter and the rest of the world. Be damned, as it were. Um, follow follow what happens in the U.S. or or you know find another platform and i think that that's really dangerous especially when you have platforms that allow unabated or allow things to happen unabated as we saw earlier this year in the u.s um with a platform like parlor where misinformation was allowed to spread disinformation was allowed to spread hatred vitriol whatever you want was on the menu there um and we saw what happened in the u.s now i i we could also draw comparisons to what happened in the U.S. to what happened recently in South Africa with the um, <clears throat> the protest action. Is there a worry that that sort of action is going to happen again at, during the local government elections, but on a wider scale uh, because of social media? I would say yes, there is a worry. Um, and you, you know, I just you've, you've suddenly reminded me of uh, whatever it was like ten years ago all these wonderful stories about how fantastic social media was for bringing freedom to, to the Middle East and to um, and the Arab Spring and that kind of stuff. And, you know, how badly that backfired. Um, so, you know, so, so um, I think, yes, there is a worry. I mean, you, you don't want to over, you don't want to overstate the effect that social media can have on elections results, mm. although it certainly can, can have an effect. But you do want to emphasize that, you know, there can be a lot of uh, collateral damage to xenophobia and hate speech and kind of just ideological bullshit on, on social media. And as you say, we've had our recent example. Um, and there are loads of, loads of examples in the Philippines and all over the world of social media being used. And not just, not just the kind of open platforms like Facebook, but obviously the dark social media um, like WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram. How that's been used to to um, you know to to uh, promulgate violence and to and to um, cause chaos. So yeah, I think there is a risk. Um, you know, it's and it also gets quite interestingly complex when you trying to find out who's responsible for things and why. Mm. You know, so for example, um, you know, a lot of the kind of um, misinformation around. Uh, South Africa and, and our nuclear program, mm. and going back to the to the um, to when Kosani uh, Lamini Zuma and Soran Poza were vying for um, for leading being leaders of the uh, NC and for um, being the presidential candidate. A lot of the misinformation can be pushed by foreign governments, for example. You know, yeah. maybe using maybe kind of in a sort of a franchise operation where they're using local. Um, people to, to push the misinformation mm. but it's like sometimes tr tracing back to the the source and the the reason can be quite complex and that and because of that it means it's quite hard to put up watch lists and to kind of prepare for these eruptions of uh, violence or xenophobia or, or, or hate speech so yeah it's going to be a problem 
So, Chris, I want to ask you, I mean, we've spoken about government and, and the, the fine line that we need to do, to walk in terms of having government regulate things, but you don't want government to censor and have control over social media where millions of citizens use these these platforms. But in, as regards misinformation, should government be stepping in and, and making the spreading of misinformation a criminal offense, or is that a step too far? Well, it's already happened, right? So, um, and that's why they can... They've got 18 people uh, in custody or took them into custody for spreading the misinformation around the recent unrest. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they did um, um, pass a law saying that spreading misinformation around COVID, for example, is is illegal. Mm. So, but you know, I don't think that's I don't think that is stepping on free speech mm. because that is just kind of a, an extension of the normal constitutional um, framework. You know of what's allowed and what isn't allowed. Um, you know what we what you need to worry about is when the when governments can rechange what the definition of um, negative information and misinformation is mm. um, on the fly, on the fly yeah. in terms of in terms of um, uh, particular platforms. You know, so and I think I mean I think in China, for example, um, Nigeria, there's examples there of governments. Saying you know that they're um, all in Thailand, saying that you know just discussing the the, the monarchy in Thailand is a jailable offence. This kind of stuff. I think that's what you need to, to look out for. Um, but also, you don't want to you don't want to governments to be able to have access to the kind of data that I don't know if I'm saying this, the kind of data that Facebook has or Google, for example. You know, you don't want them to have access to to that level of granular information about the citizens. Yeah. Um, although you know the idea that we're going to be trusting some Americans to then instead is also obviously quite laughable. Yeah, I mean, I, I often have to laugh at myself thinking uh, if I told thirteen-year-old me that uh, in a couple of years' time I'd be sharing all of my personal information with a uh, a company in the U.S., uh, I'm pretty sure he would have laughed at me. Um, <laughs> but now it's just yeah. a way of life, right? I mean, we, we've kind of given these companies massive amounts of, of power and just trusted that they would use it responsibly. Um, in the case of Facebook, we've seen that that isn't always the case. Um, and I suppose if we if we scratch the surface of other places, we'd, we'd find a lot more. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a really weird juxtaposition. Um, Chris... In, in terms of if you find somebody spreading misinformation, like the case of that um, that podcaster you mentioned where they shared a, a out-of-context uh, graph, mm. and I know exactly who you're talking about. I don't want to mention them because I don't want to give them the time of day. Um, yeah. But w what sort of consequences are there for somebody sharing something like that, uh, whether it's COVID misinformation? Uh, and then what happens if, in the case of somebody sharing election misinformation, are there two different sorts of approaches that are taken by governments and org organizations such as yourselves? So I think, so, so first of all, um, we wouldn't take any, I mean, we, we're purely a, um, a kind of making resources available and doing like investigations and, and mapping of social media ecosystems, that kind of stuff. Um, we wouldn't take action as such, but um, I mean, it is illegal to spread COVID misinformation in South Africa. So that can be reported both to, to um, police as well as to um, the real 411. Mm -hmm. Well, the real 411, I think, concentrates on elections um, as well quite heavily. So if you if you see elections misinformation reported to real 411, then they will get the IEC to look at it, for example. Okay. Or in terms of like in terms of um, political parties spreading misinformation. 
But um, but really, the, the the crux of it is that if you see misinformation on a platform, there are platform-specific ways of reporting it to get it taken down. Um, uh, could you maybe share share with us those? those... No, I'm, I mean basically, oh. I'm talking about flagging stuff on Twitter. Oh, okay, I see. So that so kind of thing. Yeah. So all the stuff, it. all the stuff you know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's there's that way, but then the other, and and you know, in that case, it, it's why the the bro flake pod bro we're talking about. <laughs> It's why he has gone onto a totally dark platform where, where um, you know, it's not public facing to mm. sign up for. It. So, so, so it's it's a it's not a platform like Twitter where we can complain. Mm. Um, but the complaints of Twitter got him the platforms. I mean that that's kind of the one the one move. But you know the the other way is just going to be to report to to authorities. I'm afraid if it's like egregious stuff. Um, yeah, I think I yeah. think a lot of the time folks are worried that the police aren't going to do something. But I think in this case, it's a case of if the police don't know, they can't do anything. So it's probably best to just speak up and say something. Even if it's just, hey, this guy is spreading misinformation. I'm going to file a report at my local police station. Um, I, I, I think that that's, it's a small thing that we as citizens can do to just make the internet a little bit of a safer place for everybody uh, and a place where to go to for reliable information. There are a lot of people that I, I, I work around every single day that aren't on Facebook 24-7 or aren't on Twitter 24-7 looking for news and trying to verify stuff. And a lot of the time, these folks will log onto Twitter or Facebook at the end of the day and they'll see a piece of information and they believe it because they don't know any better, yeah. which I think is unfair for those people. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think... Just to be clear, I don't think that we're ever going to get rid of the problem of misinformation, disinformation. There's no way that we're going to that that you know we can report every instance to to anybody mm. to, to to you know to any kind of um, local authority. But what we can do is to push back on a personal level against those pieces of of misinformation. Um, you know, it's I don't think it's a problem that's going to go away. I think that the only thing we can do is to kind of try and um, ameliorate it um, in terms of educating people as to how to spot misinformation. Because most people don't want to deliberately spread lies. Yeah, you know, it's it's often a, a kind of accidental thing um, or a consequence of you having some kind of confirmation bias about this thing you're seeing. So, so I think it's, education is going to be the key to, key to all this, um, and also empowering civil society organizations and newsrooms to and giving them the tools to also take part in the fight against misinformation to spot it. Um, you know, because currently I don't think a lot of people have access to you know, things like crowd tangle or or meltwater or you know all kind of big social listening tools and mm-hmm. platforms that allow them to to spot kind of trends and misinformation. Yeah. So Chris moving into the elections then um how do we as citizens kind of guard ourselves from getting getting reeled in by misinformation? What sort of account should we be following? Um, is there a website we can go to where we can get reliable information? Um, maybe you could just share a few tips with us so that as citizens going into the, this this election period, we know where to get reliable information from. So, I mean, the first thing is is the the, the warning that's been given for centuries, which is if it, if it looks too good to be true, it's because it is too good to be true. So if there's, if, if there's a piece of information that immediately sparks an emotion in you, be wary of that because it's been designed to spark that emotion. You know, mm. something like uh, 
somebody putting up some kind of uh, you know image of uh, you know a home affairs official asleep on a bench or something. Yeah, you know you need to check whether that is true because that's designed to incite an emotion you so to stop you thinking, to make you just react. So that's kind of on a personal level thing. But then also, um, you know, the there's a reason why media organizations exist. I mean, if you were look, if you're looking for kind of credible information around COVID, don't just, you know, um, COVIDinformation.gov all written out. Uh, yeah, well, like well, well, GOT, GOV, well, yeah, and I mean, Center but or something also, like that. But I mean, also things like, like, yeah, if you're looking for, 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 for reliable information around the pandemic, go to Becca Cecil, yeah, go mm. to a News 24, even go to a Daily Maverick, go to, you know, don't go to WhatsApp and just believe random bits of information. Mm. You have to go to the ones that have, that have been around for a while and that are authoritative, you know, and that don't make too many mistakes. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's key. It's, it's like, winnow out the mass of information you get and make sure you're only believing accredited sources. Mm. Not you want to believe believe them, un, you know, uncritically, but make sure that at least you started there with, you know, credible sources that you know are worth dealing with. Absolutely, and yeah, I think that's some some really good starting advice for folks, especially the if it sparks if it sparks an emotion, stop and think about what you're reading. I think that's yeah, a really think, important point. Yeah, and Africa Check has got a really good little um, checklist of that as well. If you go to africacheck dot org. Um, you know, the, the South African, starting South Africa yeah. fact checking organization, they've got some amazing stuff and some really good um, kind of tips and tricks. Um, okay, Chris, to wrap up, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, do you have any personal advice for folks regarding misinformation as we as we move into the local government elections? Um, you know, I think that... There's, there's a lot that could be said, but I think the, the main bit is, you know, people who are in the business of spreading misinformation um, are, you know, they're, they're not there to do good. Um, so you just need to be super, super vigilant about about who you follow and about how, how you deal with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid it's, it's as simple as that. You know, you just need to be way more critical of what you believe and what you don't believe. Constant vigilance. Yeah, it's not great advice because it's like, you know. <laughs> it's very basic, <laughs> but I mean. I know. We're at, we're at a point where the basic stuff needs needs reiterating. Um, <laughs> I mean, there were there, during the this vaccine push, I've seen so much vaccine misinformation and especially people citing that study from the 90s that is basically not really a study that's mm, been retracted. Yeah. Um, and people still cite that study. So, I mean, it seems like obvious information but and obvious advice, but it really deserves to be reiterated, yeah. in my opinion. And I mean, yeah, if I could say one more thing, it would be that the people who, who are anti-misinformation, so for example, people who, who are really get upset by um, anti-vaxxers, for example, mm. they can be as horrible as the anti-vaxxers. You know, unfortunately, because I think a lot of people are getting very upset and they, st- and they have a tendency to attack misinformation, to say yeah. you're an idiot, you're stupid. Yeah. You know, how can you believe this rubbish? So I think one one thing we also have to learn is that both of those sides of the equation 
are trying to polarize us. Mm. They try and get us onto, onto each other's side. Um, in the case of the, you know, the anti-vaxxers, they are, they are, they, you know, they are, they have no um, good qualities, I would think. In the case of the, the kind of pro-vaxxers, they have good qualities, but it's disguised behind this anger and, yeah. uh, you know, nastiness. Don't let either of those positions drive you into a position. You know, always keep the position of, um, I'm not talking in terms of vac- vaccination hesitancy, I'm talking about in terms of believing fake news. Mm. Don't be in the position of wanting to have to believe one side or the other of a piece of what could be misinformation. You know, I'd rather take the middle ground on that. Yeah. Just to emphasize, don't take the middle ground on vaccinations. <laughs> Go ahead, be vaccinated. But I mean, in terms of understanding misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the truth is often somewhere in the middle uh, of the black and white. So absolutely. It, it, yeah, except for vaccination. Yeah, no, I agree. 100%. <laughs> we are 100% clear there. Get vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to try and explain why vaccination is good. But people that are, that are doctors who are medical professionals who I trust have told me that vaccination is good. So that's what yeah. I'm going to believe. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, and please do keep us updated with regards to uh, this project. We're really excited to see what comes out of it. And hopefully it can inspire a change within South Africa. Yep, thank you very much. Thanks to Chris Roper once again for joining us for that interview. It was really, really interesting and really great, uh, especially for us working in news. It's sometimes very difficult to to tell facts from fiction and at the rate that news moves, it can be quite concerning. Uh, but do take heed of uh, some of the, the tips that Chris gave as regards combating misinformation and disinformation. Um, and maybe think before you share things. As Chris says, if it inspires an emotion within you, there's you there's a good chance that it might be doing that deliberately rather than because that's what the news says. Uh, but that's going to wrap it up from us this week for the Africast. Thank you so much for tuning in. From myself, Brendan Lars, cheerio. From Clinton Matos. Hi, everybody. And from Robin Lichetti. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next week. Cheerio. Bye. Cheers. Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.